listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. Mark chapter 12. For those who have old school, you have your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you have a smartphone. You can use the God Factor app. It's free. And you can use the Bible tab to follow along. Follow in our Father's Word, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, as we continue our series, Clean Sweep, Messages for a Cleaner Life. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. When I was five years old, I was involved in an exodus of sorts. My parents lived in New Jersey. We need to repent right now, don't we? (laughs) Parents lived in New Jersey, and we left that part of New Jersey, and we traveled all the way to another part of New Jersey. See, you were all excited for nothing. Thought I was leaving New Jersey. No, we just moved from one part of Jersey to the other. I was five years old, left my elementary school, I know because it was very traumatic, and we lived in a, on a 26-acre farm. My parents grew up in Brooklyn, both of them, and they left the city, took us, were tired of city living, and bought a 26-acre farm, and we, there we grew cows and chickens, and I raced racing pigeons. I actually did that three hours from here in New Jersey. I used to do that. Lived on this 26-acre farm, but in the beginning... It wasn't really a fun type of a thing. It was, we had a lot of time of our hand, on our hands and had all this area to, go, to run around in and fill up all this time space. I had an older brother and a younger brother. I'm the middle child, which explains a few things about me. And uh, I had all this time on my hands. Well, I found this three-inch round magnifying glass. Now, a magnifying glass in the hands of any other five-year-old boy, probably not a big deal, but in the hands of Mike, there are a lot of things that you can do with a three-inch magnifying glass. And I found out very quickly that on an average day, a relatively sunny day, it didn't have to be too sunny, but if the sun was out, uh, especially in the summertime, I could take that magnifying glass and I could position it just right, me, Mike, I could position it just right, and I could harness all the sun's rays. I could command them, me. I could command the sun's rays to come and hit that lens, and then focus through that lens, and come out the other side, and wham, whatever was there was toast. I had the ability to do that, me, Mike. And so I found that I could take that three-inch round 
magnifying glass and I could kneel down and I could put a twig on the concrete sidewalk and I could angle that glass just right and I could harness all the sun's rays, the whole universe, the rays of the sun, all over I could command them to come down into that magnifying glass and hit the center and come out and shoof, the leaf, the twig, toast. It would smoke and smolder, and sometimes I would get fire going, and I realized that if I could do that with one twig, well, I could do that with multiple twigs. And if one leaf was no challenge for me, Mike, me, and my magnifying glass, what could I do with a pile of leaves? And so this went on until there was a spot on the sidewalk. In fact, there were many spots on the sidewalk (laughs) that had black burn marks that my father was a smoker and I think he was beginning to get concerned because I was doing more damage to the sidewalk that led down to our pool than he was doing with his cigarette butts. But I was able to burn everything. And one day I was out there, me, Mike, as a young boy with my magnifying glass, doing what I did best, 26 acres, but all I needed was a sidewalk and some sun. And I was on my way to do what I was doing so well. And an innocent, unknowing ant (laughs) happened to make his way onto that sidewalk. And I got an idea. Me, Mike. I thought, hmm, I wonder what might happen. And so I knelt down over that ant who was probably either going to or coming from his colony innocently, not carrying anything yet. And I took that magnifying glass and again, I commanded the rays of the sun into the magnifying glass and out the other side, so focused, and the ant began to squirm until there was a pop and a puff of smoke and the ant was toast. I learned a lesson when I was five years old a lesson that applies to us today, that focus is everything. That I could take that same magnifying glass on the same day, all conditions being equal. Put anything I want to underneath that magnifying glass, everything else being equal, and accomplish absolutely nothing if I didn't keep it in one spot long enough. I learned the importance of focus when it comes to life. Same is true when we look at this particular passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 12. We can be engaged in many pursuits in life. In fact, if you haven't noticed, there are many things pulling at us, tugging at us, insisting that they are our priority. When we boil it all down and we come to the Word of God and we pause, we realize that all of those things pale in comparison to living life on purpose. That's what we're going to talk about today, because that's what Jesus is talking about, living life on purpose. It's important that you understand the one reason above all else that you came into the world to accomplish. It's important for us as a church family. It's important for those listening to the podcast or on the airwaves. It's important for you to understand, to grasp wholeheartedly the purpose of your life. It's important for us to grasp and embrace the purpose of this church. 
There's nobody on the planet immune from this purpose. Your life on purpose, your life focused, you begin to get a burn. Things become secondary. Everything becomes subject to life on purpose, understanding the reason why you exist. Jesus is here having a series of discussions with the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They've been talking about the resurrection of Sadducees. See, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Some of you just got what I just said. Jesus has cursed a fig tree that didn't bear any fruit, and the fig tree withered from the roots, the whole plant, and the disciples are like, wow, look at that. Jesus has been talking to them about paying taxes to Caesar, and he's been stupefying them, and they're astounded at the teaching of Jesus, and a scribe comes along. What was a scribe? A copyist. See, they didn't have Lifeway at that time. If they wanted a copy of the Old Testament, the book of God, if they wanted a copy of the Bible, they had to pay a scribe to write by hand a copy of the Old Testament. And they would get that particular copy for themselves, their own personal copy. They didn't have Christian bookstores or Barnes and Noble or Books a Million. They couldn't go online and order those types of things. So the scribe was the one that they would solicit. They would solicit their services. They'd write out a copy for them, and that would be their personal Bible. Well, the scribes had a significant job. They had to make sure it was right. Every yod and tittle, not the least stroke of a pen. Remember, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You know, in the Hebrew language, if you miss a dot, a yod, or a stroke, a tittle, you change the whole meaning of a word. So every word inspired, very clear there from the mouth of Jesus, not the least stroke of a pen, not a yod or a tittle, will pass away. Even though heaven and earth will pass away, your life will one day be over. And what will matter once it's over and you enter into eternity, either for better in the presence of God or for worse, eternally separate from him, What will matter is whether or not you lived your life on earth on purpose. See, the scribes had this job where they had to get it right. They were considered authorities, knowledgeable in the law, keepers of the law, making sure that everything was accurate, uh, solving questions, answering questions about the law. This is why they're in the process of debating with Jesus. To whom should we pay taxes? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? At the resurrection, whose uh, whose wife will this woman be when she's had seven husbands? They've had these debates about which of the laws should be preeminent over the others. You know, there were 613 laws that the scribes, the copyists, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had to keep track of these. They had to discuss which is the greatest. 613, 365 of them were negatively stated. Do not do this. You shall not. Don't do this. Negatively stated. 365, 248 in the affirmative, the positive. You shall, you must add them together, 613. And so the scribe, I think with good intentions, 
The scribe comes and recognizes that Jesus is giving, giving good answers. And it's like, you know, David Letterman's top 10 list. Which of the commandments is the greatest? Let's give us number one. Out of all 613, help us filter through Jesus. Maybe you, O oh rabbi, have some insight into the greatest of all of these. And he comes and says, which of these is the greatest? And Jesus gives the answer. And at the end... At the end of this discussion, we'll begin with the end. In verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, if a scribe with that kind of a responsibility for the word of God and authority in the law was not far from the kingdom of God, it means he wasn't close enough. If he was that close and yet not in the kingdom of God, what about us? Most of us have far less responsibility than the scribe did and far less of an understanding of the 613 commandments, let alone the whole Old Testament. Now, if this guy qualified to have an in to the kingdom of God, if, any, if ever there was anybody who would qualify to have an in, special privilege to the kingdom of, of heaven, the kingdom of God, it was the scribe. And Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What about us? There are some of us today, right here, right now, some listening by podcast, some on the airwaves. You are in the same situation as the scribe. You are religious you know the Bible. You might have gone to church for a number of years, but you are still not in the kingdom of God. You can be in the same situation that the scribe was in, close, but no cigar. I was an altar boy. I was raised Roman Catholic. Went through catechism. I came from an Italian Catholic family. I mean, how could you be Italian, born in New York, raised in New Jersey, and not be raised Catholic? How was how that even possible? Some of you can identify with this. I went through catechism. I knew what it was to know certain portions of the Bible, about communion and confession and confirmation. I was near to the kingdom of God, but I had never made my crossing over into the kingdom of God by personally, personally giving my life to Christ you might be like a scribe today. You might be like me as a young boy growing up. I'm not talking about the laser that I created with my force field magnifying glass. I'm talking about knowing about God but not knowing God. Not personally having all of your sins forgiven because you don't have saving faith in what Jesus did on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You, like the scribe, can be merely near the kingdom of God. Today, God can be speaking to you. It's your day to do business with God. It's your day to no longer be near the kingdom of God, but to get into the kingdom of God. Give your life to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Begin the journey of a lifetime. Begin life on purpose, life where you are focused on the greatest of all pursuits. Nobody who's ever given their life to Christ has ever lived to regret it, but I'll show you a whole bunch of people who pursued everything else apart from loving the Lord their God with all their heart with all their soul, with all their might, with all their strength, and they're miserable for it. 
People who have gone to church their whole life or for a large chunk of their life, it's amazing with the passage of time, we all become like frogs in kettles. The water of life heats up and we begin to get uncomfortable, but we don't realize it. We begin to get squeezed. The pressure comes and before you know it, the main thing is no longer the main thing. And when it comes to living life on purpose, it's absolutely essential that you and I keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, and with all our strength. No area of life that can be safely separated from loving God. When you're fasting and you're praying, and I know that many of you are fasting and you're praying, we had that challenge in our last time together. How many of you have begun to fast and to pray? Whether it's from food or from television or from technology, many of you. It's important that you understand the objective of the fasting and praying. What are you asking God to do in your life? You're asking him to get a burn going in your life, that you would love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. That's what you're asking God to do. That's the chief end of man, to love and enjoy God. And so when you're fasting and praying, that's what you're asking God to do. Lord, help me to love you deeply, passionately, completely with every part of my being. I ask that you'd help me. You're asking God to do that in your church family. Lord God, make my church family a community of people who genuinely, truly love you. And if you're looking for a church home, you have found the right place. This is the place. This place right here, Grace Fellowship where you can discover and experience God deeply, where you can personally lock arms with other people who want to go deep with God, love Him with all their hearts, with all their soul, with all their might, with all their strength. You are in the right place. You made the right choice by coming here today. And even people who are listening, I actually think that the right way to make a decision in your life, if this is the truth about life on purpose, that the number one pursuit in life is above every other choice, then you should make a decision on where you live geographically, where you can lock, show, lock arms with other people who want to discover and experience God deeply, want to love Him. That means the choice of where you worship takes preeminence over your career. Oh, wait a second. I'm supposed to provide for my family. Yes, you are. But the first thing you're supposed to do with your family is to raise your children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might, and with all their strength. And many people have pursued career paths where they're making a lot of money, but they're left high and dry spiritually because they cannot find a church home that is both preaching the Word of God and putting it into practice. And you're wondering why your life is dry and miserable because you have not pursued the number one purpose in your life, which is not to make money and not to advance your career, but to advance your spiritual depth, your roots with God. And your walk with God is never ever to be something Thing by design that you do by yourself. We are to go on that journey with other people. It's never to be done alone. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The Christian life, spiritual growth, is not an island where you're doing it all yourself on your own. If life's number one purpose is to love the Lord your God passionately with every fiber of your being down to the last atom in your body, if that's life's pursuit, then you will do everything and anything you have to do 
No matter how radical, no matter how insane it might seem by the standards of the world, faith at times seems crazy. And if you're not looking crazy to the people of the world, you're probably not living a life of faith. Don't you think Abraham was considered to be a looney tune when he was going to offer his only son Isaac? Of course, that's crazy. Don't you think Peter seemed to be insane when the storm was there and the waves were rocking and Jesus said, come. And the other disciples gasped. Are you out of your mind? No, he's not out of his mind. He's in faith. There have got to be decisions in your life that you're making that look crazy to you let alone the world. If you're not making decisions that fly in the face of your logic and your reasoning and your education, that tells me that you're living your life based on logic and reasoning and education and not a life of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the Bible says. Impossible. Jesus is reminding us, thank you for coming, Mr. Scribe, I thank you, Mr. Scribe. Maybe someday I'll get to meet him. I don't know. But he asked the question that's relative and pertinent and practical to us today. What's the greatest of all the commandments? What's the purpose of your life? The purpose of your life is to love God without holding anything back from him. Now, the beautiful thing about Jesus, many beautiful things about Jesus But he's constantly taking the people of his day from where they are to where they need to be, which is what we're doing every time we read the Bible. Where we are, where we are now with our understanding of God, where we are in our walks with God, and for as many people that are listening, there are that many different places we are. But God is in the business of taking us where we are to where he wants us to be. It's the known to the unknown. And our answer to God should always be yes before we even know where he's going to take us because we don't trust God because where he's taking us seems to make sense to us. We trust God because we know it's him taking us. And therefore, wherever he wants to take me is a safe place. When I read the word of God, when you read the word of God, when you submit yourself to the word of God, and by the way, it's not possible to follow God without submitting to his word. It's impossible to submit to the word of God without knowing the Word of God. This is why personal study, meditation on God's Word, the preaching and proclamation of God's Word has to be preeminent in your life, has to be central to your life. You cannot worship and serve a God you do not know. You can't obey the Word of God unless you're in the Word of God. It's vitally important that the preeminent place above all else in our lives is God. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving his commentary. It's one of the shortest sermons in all of the Bible. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which is the Shema, the beginning of the Shema, the Hebrew prayer that they would pray in the morning and in the evening, and that devout Jews to this day still pray, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then he does an interesting thing. They ask them for one, Jesus gives them two and says that they're one. You could almost see the fuses blowing for the scribe where he says, you know, what's the most important one? And Jesus answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength. The second is this, though, just wait a minute. 
wait a minute, Jesus. Hold on a minute. Jesus doesn't let anybody get in word in edgewise. Don't you love Jesus? The second, well, I didn't ask you for two. I asked you for one. There's 613. I asked you for number one. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's the whole sermon. Brief to the, don't you wish that I could preach that kind of a sermon? There's no other commandment greater than these. Jesus takes the two, makes them one, and teaches us that it's absolute insanity to separate our love for God from our love for people. Foolishness. And the scribes needed to hear this. The Pharisees needed to hear this. The ones who were studying the word needed to hear this. And you know, some of the greatest difficulties in the body of Christ are not from those who just are are brand new believers in Christ. They're the ones who went to seminary. They're the ones like me with the alphabets after their name and the titles before their their names. Those are often the people in my history and in my history of helping other pastors and other church leaders, the ones who typically are the greatest difficulty causing division, who have great problems with pride, are the ones who have the greatest education. The more experience, the more knowledge you have of God, the greater danger you have of becoming. You ready for this? I'm going to say it again. The more education you have, the more experience you have, the more of a track record you have in following God and knowing about him, I don't think you're ready to hear what's going to come out of my mouth next. The more education we have, the more knowledge we have, the more familiar we are with God, the greater the danger is that we will become like a scribe, we will become like a Pharisee, we will be whitewashed tombs, absolute hypocrites on the sidelines, no longer able to be used by God because we're primarily operating in pride, whereas God values, treasures, blesses, pours His Spirit out upon the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they needed to be reminded that it is not possible to love God without loving people. It's absolute foolishness to think that we can love God without loving people. In fact, it's not too much to say that the way we love people, the way we treat people, the way we use email, The way we text, the way we respond to voicemails, the way we write letters, the way we interact with people, the way we make eye contact or don't do those things, reflect in a directly correlated way the depth or shallowness of our love for God. It's not too far to say that I can tell whether or not you love God by how you love people. And so can everybody else. You're probably getting sick of me talking about leadership and qualifications for leadership. You know, the number one qualification for leadership for me is humility. Humility manifests itself by whether or not you love people. 
Because if you're not humble, you won't love people. You don't love people, you don't love God. You don't love God, get out of here. I don't want you as a leader. God doesn't want you as a leader. You're a Pharisee. Go someplace else, but you can't help us. You're absolutely useless to God if you're not even loving God. You're not even on the tip of the iceberg if you're not examining deeply your love, your compassion, your concern, your enjoyment of people. You know, I even meet people from time to time. I meet guys who are preaching pastors or they're, they're called teaching pastors. And their job is they get there for 40, 50 hours a week, study the commentaries, read the books, and they're, they're sermonizers. On Sunday morning, they get to preach the message. Somebody might be listening by the podcast right now. Maybe you're a sermonizer. Maybe somebody's listening right now on the, by the podcast and the airwaves, and you're a sermonizer, and you're holed up in your office for 40, 50 hours a week studying the commentaries and reading the texts. You're well on your way to being a Pharisee because you've got to be interacting with people, real lives. The Word has to become flesh in your own life. You have to be interacting with people. The people who are in positions where they're sermonizers, they're just a teaching pastor, or in the greatest danger of being complete hypocrites because you're teaching the Word of God, but through the course of the week, you're not taking time to put it into action. That's the purpose of Bible study, personally, whether you're a teacher or not. That's the purpose of fasting and praying that, oh God, you would help me love you by loving people. Help me love you by loving people. And of all the places that Jesus could have pulled from here, it's significant that he pulls from your favorite Old Testament book that I know you're using in your personal devotions. It's probably a place where we're pulling from with Awana in our scripture memorization. In the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Of all the places that Jesus could have been pulling from, he pulls from the book of Leviticus. Discussions about mold, mildew, clean and unclean, so many days for this, so many days for that, rules and regulations for the priests. I mean, there's not even one of the Ten Commandments that Jesus is mentioning here. You'd think that the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments, would be there on top of the 613. Uh, 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 uh. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, 18. Chapter 19, verse 18. Look with me at our Father's word, Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 9, because every word of Scripture has its context. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. You shall, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The scribe would have been familiar of the context in which Leviticus 19, 18 occurs because every word in Scripture is part of a phrase. Every phrase in Scripture makes up a sentence. Every sentence in Scripture makes up what we would call paragraphs, even though in the original Greek, for example, there were no paragraphs. The paragraphs make up books. The books are put in place with the other 65 books, you know, 66 books in total. So every book in the Bible has to take its place with the other 65 books. And so that's where we get a comprehensive theology that the Bible interprets itself. So when Jesus is mentioning Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the scribe would have been familiar with everything that was around verse 18. And he would have been familiar with, for example, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, 
Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. We see that again and again. I am the Lord your God. The Lord is warning them using his personal covenant name, Lord Yahweh using his personal covenant name to give them a charge. The idea was, you know, we can be familiar with it here in this particular part of the country. When you're driving around, you see the cornfields. And if you're a farmer and you know anything about planting corn or planting soybeans, whatever crop it is that you have, the idea is that you want to go to the edge of your crop as much as possible because every ear of corn is converted to dollars and cents. You're a foolish farmer if you don't go to the edges and make sure everything is gathered. You don't leave things on the edge, but in God's economy, the idea is that you leave a little bit. You're merciful. You leave a little bit so that the poor people can come and to get it. And by the way, it teaches us that there's no handout in God's economy. There's no freebie. Your work, even if you're poor, it doesn't say here that the poor, you're supposed to distribute it to the poor. The poor people will then come and gather it. We do well in this country to learn that it's great to have welfare programs. It's great to have programs that help people who are not able to help themselves. But the Bible does say in the New Testament as well. Here it is in principle. In the New Testament, if a man does not work, he shall not eat. So we're not being unmerciful by saying you've got to work for your food. You're poor? Fantastic. We'll help you. We're not going to take all the grain that's on the edge of our fields. We're going to leave some, and then you can come and work. That four-letter word that's become so evil. And today, people who have money are considered the bad guys. You make $250,000, you're an evil person. You make money. Well, who's paying for all these people who don't want to work? Nighttime Bible readers, more than we realize, we want to quote the Bible when it's convenient. We read the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, and one eye closed. And we, wonder, we want to help the poor, help the poor. Yes, help the poor. But let's also teach the poor people to help themselves, to work for a living, right? I'm not being harsh by saying that. I'm being biblical. God himself is expecting the poor people to be involved. Now, part of us in the body of Christ, we might be responsible for some of the crisis we're in as a nation because we're not as benevolent as we could be. We need to be able to be using the money that God gives us to be able to help those. That's why it says widows, the needy, those who cannot help themselves, we help. Those who can help themselves need to help themselves. But here there's principles for us to take away about the involvement of people who don't have money, who are poor, taking responsibility for themselves, and people who do have the money, who are planting the crops, and allowing and enabling those people who are poor to work and to help themselves. This is what it means to love your neighbor, to have a genuine compassion, a genuine concern. At your workplace, if you're a boss, if you're in a position of influence, you should be looking for ways where it's not just what you're putting in your pocket, but how you're able to help others be responsible Work, make a living for themselves. We should be looking at that as a church family. We're going to be looking at it, about that as a church family. We have to. That's what it means to be responsible. That's what it means to be biblical. 
Look at verse 12 or verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. The name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until morning. When you're supposed to give somebody their paycheck, give them their paycheck. Don't let them wait for it. You say, well, there's an unresolved issue. Resolve it, but pay them. You made an agreement, pay them. A worker's worth his wage. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you want somebody to withhold your pay from you? Of course not. Then if you're in a position of influence, position of leadership, you're a boss someplace, you're in charge, pay the people who are working for you who help put food on your table. Help them put food on their table. The principle is overarching here. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not, listen to this, listen to this. You shall not be partial to the poor. Now today, we're living in a day and age politically where it seems like everything's going in the favor of being partial to the poor. But if we want to read the whole Bible, we're not supposed to be partial to the poor. Look at this. Or defer to the great. In other words, everyone's equal at the feet of God. It's a level playing field. We're not supposed to be considering each other based on how rich or how poor we are, but on what is fair. That's what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. Verse 16. Now, this one I know none of us struggles with here because there's a special DNA of the people that live in this part of the country. We're superhuman. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Slander, saying things that are not correct about other people, slamming other people. Another type of of, uh, wrongly speaking about your neighbor is gossip. Now, none of us deals with that, do we? Sharing other people's business to people who are not in a need to know, none of us deal with that here. It's been eradicated in this part of the country. Those of you listening by podcast, airwaves, this is the place you need to come because we don't gossip and slander here. Do you like it when people are talking about you behind your back? Of course you don't. Then love your neighbor as yourself. Don't do it. For he is the Lord. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is teaching us very clearly the idea of loving God is not possible. The ability to love God is not possible if we divorce that from loving people. Remember that next time you're starting to use email as a conflict resolution tool, which is not what email is. It's a conflict inflammation tool. Instead of responding in a way that your flesh would love you to, pick up the phone and resolve it verbally and do more listening. Listen twice as much. That's why God gave us two ears and one mouth. To listen twice as much as we talk. Consider your dealings with other people about building them up, about encouraging them, about putting yourself in their shoes. Oh, if we started being concerned about other people and the interests of other people that are godly interests, there are some interests we shouldn't concern ourselves with, but godly interests, imagine the way you could become a flame fanner for other people in your life. Think of yourself as a flame fanner. Yes, a fire starter like me as a five-year-old. 
stoking somebody else's fire for the glory of God, loving your neighbor as yourself. How do you want people to speak of you? Speak that way about other people. How do you want people to listen to you? Listen to other people in that regard. How do you want people to care for you? Care for other people in that same way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The purpose of your life and the purpose of my life that trumps every other pursuit of life is to love God. And the scribe tells Jesus, hey, I've seen you've answered right. You've done a good job, he says to Jesus. He says, you're right, teacher. You have truly, what you've truly said, he is one. He's, re- he's respecting God by not using his name, which was the, the way that would be ingrained into a scribe to hold the name of Yahweh in such high regard that they wouldn't even say his name. That's why he's using the pronoun. That's right, what you're saying, he is one. There is no other besides him. He's using the pronoun instead of the personal name of God and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's practically applying what Jesus is saying. The scribe with knowledge of all the Old Testament practices, he brings burnt offerings and sacrifices into it. And he says, you're absolutely right. To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself is the most important thing. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. The problem is he wasn't there yet. He was so close. And some of us are in that same situation. We're close, but we're not living life on purpose. We've either strayed from it, having started, or we've never begun in the first place. Today's your day. Today is the day when you give your life to Christ for the first time. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.